0: Would you join me? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This would be a great opportunity. Um, If you have a cell phone or any kind of electronic device, I'm going to invite you right now. We kind of had a reminder last week. Um, If you would put that on silent, all right? Put that on silent. Um, And it'll vibrate if something massive, like if your house is burning down, your neighbor calls, it'll still vibrate in your pocket, all right? if you got a tablet and you don't know how to turn the volume, just cut the whole thing off. We're going to have their verses on the screen and they'll be plenty big enough for you to see. So uh, um, the reason I'm saying that is I, I kind of think there could be potential. And this is all in the Lord's hands. I've prayed that it'll go as he sees fit. Uh, this this week and next, not next week, but in two weeks may end up being something that we refer folks back to watch. And it'd be great if we're not distracted amid it with um, electronic stuff going off that uh, causes us to lose our train of thought in the moment or keep someone from hearing something important. Um, And so if if you could help us on that. Matthew 5, all right? Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Been backing up and reading verse 17 to 20, even though we've already covered two sections of verses afterward. And I want to continue to do that because it leads into today's text Uh, As you probably perceive, I'm not sure what was on the handout, today is part one. Okay, This is part one of a two-part message as you see what the topic is. Look at verse 17 of Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Still toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 17, Do not think, this is Christ, do not think, which means don't even think for a minute. Don't even think this for a minute because you're going to be tempted to think this way. From how he lives and things he says and people twisting what he says and does. Do not think for even a minute that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. So we know he's talking about the Old Testament. That's not what he's doing. He knows what he's saying is you watch my life. I've already checked many boxes and I'm, I'm going to check some more. I have not come, he says, to abolish them but to fulfill them. No one in the history of the world can say that their life is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ could. That puts him in a unique position to interpret everything for us. He's God, in essence. All of those sacrifices were pointing to his ultimate sacrifice. 300 prophecies pointed to Jesus. He's already fulfilled 300, some more in the future. Verse 18, he's not come to abolish or destroy. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, because of verse 17 and 18, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I've got to tell you guys, I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'd rather be great in the kingdom of heaven than least in the kingdom of heaven. But verse 20 is another group. Jesus says, Jesus, I tell you that unless your righteousness, your righteousness, you say, we don't have any. I know this puts us in a desperate position for a Savior. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then the last two weeks, we've hit these messages on anger. He says in verse 21, not on your screen, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. You think as long as you don't murder. Christ says, but I say. What do you mean, but you say? I say that if you have anger, if you insult people with contempt, then you're in danger of the judgment and in danger of the fire of hell. After that, he says, you've heard that don't commit adultery. That's right out of the Ten Commandments, those two. Christ says, I say to you, not only don't commit adultery, I'm saying you don't even look at a woman with lustful intention. And now today's text. I'll go ahead and tell you, we're only going to kind of look at verse 31 and its ramifications today. And then in two weeks, we'll really get into verse 32. Here's this text. It was said, it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I want to go ahead and tell you, though, the two previous sections we've looked at were direct quotes out of the Ten Commandments. This is not a quote from the Old Testament. So what Christ is saying here, this is the word on the street that you're hearing. Here's what you've been hearing, Jews. I've been telling you, don't relax. I'm giving you six places that the Jewish teachers have relaxed, and the people have accepted these relaxed version of the law and here's our third one here's what you've been hearing whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce but I say uh uh-oh you know the last two times when he's done that but I say he's been rattling the pots and pans in our kitchen over anger and lust and now what's he gonna say this time well Christ is going to give us the real interpretation of the law because verse 31 was not in the law that's what they had heard you ever heard what wasn't said you have someone, you said something and they heard what you didn't say? They've been hearing what God didn't say. Verse 32, Jesus says, I say to you. Now watch this verse. We're going to really dig into this one in two weeks. Let's whet our appetite now. I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. I'm going to tell you something. Boy, I'm getting into two weeks' message already. What he says right here in Matthew Mark and Luke don't even record this exception. They don't even record it. Only Matthew gives this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, but the main sentence is, the, here's the main sentence. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. There's an implication. When you divorce her, she's probably going to go get remarried. You're making her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You're going to make her commit adultery and whoever marries her commit adultery. There is this exception, except on the ground of sexual immorality. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Christ is uniquely qualified to interpret the law. Today we have our third, and today is easily the most emotional of the topics that I've been in a long time. I've been here a little over three years now. The only other topic that I've preached on that would rival this, as far as emotion would be when we talked about the sovereignty of God in salvation back in Romans 8, at the latter part of Romans 8 through Romans 11. Other than that, I I know going in that this is a high-risk message. I know there's a high likelihood that someone sitting here today, I don't know why, I'm not justifying this, because if you have an issue, I hope you will... At least find where I went off from the Bible, but if I'm sticking to the Bible and you get upset with me, I'm sorry that's your problem. That's not my problem. But I know that's going to be a risk, and I know that somebody may stop coming here because, ah, that's that church. They won't even really listen to the Bible. They're going to say, "That guy at that church says these things. I don't like them. I know it's risky. But I also know this: I cannot stop dodging emotional passages. If I do it here, where does it end? Hey, a lot of us, the last two weeks, and I say us, we've been getting hit by the text, right? A lot of you are like, oh boy, well, two weeks ago or last week, and it's like, so those were emotional topics. What we cannot do is like, Jeff, this one's this is emotional. And by the way, I wrote some emotions. These are real. Pain. I know that today's topic and in two weeks, part two, pain. Guilt, shame, anger, bitterness. That's those that have already been suffering through this. Not to mention those who are contemplating and they're experiencing worry, despair, fear. And here I'm going to stand up and talk about something that's going to stir that up. Man, this isn't a lot of fun today. But I can't just start dodging passages because... You know some things that are going on in our country right now, right? Those things that y'all want, preachers need to preach on those. Well, those folks could say, hey, whoa, whoa, those are emotional to us. Those stir up pain and guilt and anger and bitterness and worry and despair and fear. Please don't talk about those. So we can't do that. And I'll tell you, even more than not dodging emotional passages, I'll tell you what I really can't do, and that's I cannot alter what God's Word says. Can't. Not going to do it. I am more fearful of being responsible for what I'm saying even right now before God than that someone would get upset and leave our church or get mad at me or write me a scathing email. I'm much more fearful of him than of people. A few things by way of introduction. Uh, Obviously, we have three points I want to get into today, but I need to lay a little bit of groundwork. I'm not making an accusation of anyone here. I'm making an observation as a whole. This is my opinion, but I'm going to throw it out. I believe that the doctrine of divorce and remarriage is an area of doctrine that most modern Christians are just fine with being ignorant about. I really think that. What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about, I don't know. Haven't you ever wanted to study it? No, not really. And I think we're very content to be ignorant of what the, and I'm not using ignorant as an intellectual ability. I mean, we we just don't know what the Bible says on it. And I think we're fine to have it that way. I believe this may be part of the reason why. They fear what might be discovered. And so I think the subconscious, by the way, we're fooling ourselves. We almost think if we avoid studying it, then God is going to excuse our, quote, unwitting disobedience to his word. God, I didn't know. Like the Almighty, omniscient God doesn't know why we avoided it. Almost as though, please don't talk about it, because we can claim ignorance. If you teach on it and it really is what the Bible says, then we're accountable. And 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 I I got something. I want to do something in this area, and I really don't want to know what God says, because I might have to change. Just, just don't tell me, I, I think I need to go to the restroom for about an hour and 15 minutes. i got a virus. I, I don't mean that. If somebody gets up you got a virus, somebody's going to feel bad. They think, I, they think I'm dodging. You, you do what you got to do. Still, by way of introduction, I thought about four groups of people. And this is the group of people with all these emotions. Not just here, but here. People we know I think everybody here, we know someone very closely that's gone through a divorce. Many of you were reared or affected by divorce in your home growing up. Many of you have experienced a divorce. I mean, we're all marked by. It. this is everywhere. And so I thought about that, and I concluded, there, listen, here and out there, there are many Christians who are right now following the Lord closely who experienced and suffered through a divorce before they were even saved you understand that they weren't even saved and went through a divorce another group a second group they were saved but not really fully following the Lord like they are now they were in a time of life possibly even because of the conditions that eventually led to the divorce so beaten down so desperate That they ended up doing something when they weren't fully, almost like really living in a time of rebellion or away from the Lord. And that's when they had the divorce. And then there would be a third group that they had a divorce. Frankly, I'm going to just say it. They got some bad spiritual advice. Some well-meaning teacher, pastor, book, person on TV, godly friend, heard all the circumstances and just, again, well-intentioned. Well, God understands that. You need to get out of that. You need to, and, and they acted on it, not knowing what the Bible says. And then there's a fourth group. They were abandoned. They didn't want the divorce. They wanted no part of it. They begged and pleaded not to have it. Let's work this out, and the person left anyway. And there they are in a divorce situation. I know those things happen. What I hope will come through in all that we say this week and in a couple of weeks, please understand this, there is great hope. You don't need to go through life feeling like, nor does anyone need to look at this group of people as second-class Christians. What I want to keep coming through, and I'll, I'll deal with this more in a couple of weeks. Where are you at right now? Some are in a position they can undo. Most are in a position you cannot undo what's been done. So what are you going to do from this point forward? But we all need to know what the Bible says about it. Last thing before getting into our first point, by way of introduction, is this. As a preacher, I have found, listen, there are not nearly as many Bible reasons for divorce as most Christians, church attending Christians, think there are. Not nearly. I believe if I had tucked in, in your bulletin, a little insert and had you drop it in the offering plate and I gave you three minutes, take three minutes and write down four or five things why you think God would accept divorce. I'm telling you most of the things that that would be written on those papers and handed in. If we got them and made a list, most of them are not found in the Bible. They are against the teaching of the Bible. And I want to tell you, I'm not going to say what it is. There's one or two on there that you'd be like, surely that's in there. No, it's not. No, it is not in the Bible. Well, God knows it. if they're doing that, then they need You think that, and it's logical, and our friends in the American society says, you need to, but it's just not in the Bible. We invent stuff that's not in the Bible. And so I'm really on a tight rope here. I want to preach what the Word of God says, but I want to speak the truth in love because people are hurting. I want to confess right now, it is only by the grace of God that Deanna and I have not had a divorce, and I mean that. There have been times it's been really thin. You're like, you, do you know, y'all great. You're, Trust me, it is only God's grace. So we don't sit up here looking down. I just want to know what is God's Word say. And so if you'll join me that today, that's our goal this week and in two weeks. God, what do you say? And I think we need to begin. So this is not, so in two weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll be more expositional to this text. But for this week, we really need to spring from verse one, or verse 31, of what Christ said. He said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what you've been hearing. First point this morning out of three. Number one, marriage is a covenant and a picture. Marriage is a covenant and a picture. Both of those words are important. Marriage is a covenant and a picture. Genesis chapter 2, you know what's happened. God's created the heavens and the earth and the animals and the people and all of those things. And God took, notice, woman. God created man. And out of the man, God took woman out of the side of the man. And then verse 24, here's what the Bible says in Genesis 2, 24. Listen to this. This is key. This is our very foundation of marriage. God is the one who gets to define marriage. The Bible says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. The King James says leave and cleave, right? We grew up on that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Well, lots in that. I'm not here preaching on homosexuality necessarily. There is no room for that in marriage, in God's definition of marriage. It's just not in there. It's very clear. There's a man and his wife, and they're going to hold fast. Verse again, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I'm not camping out here today. All I'll say is when my father-in-law did Deanna and I's wedding, for 45 minutes he hammered on this idea how the number one is indivisible. What he was saying is, she's yours, you're not sending her back. She's yours from now on. And that's where we've been ever since. And I, I bought into that, and I agree with that. That is the Bible. Listen. Marriage is one man and one woman united so strongly they become one flesh. Literally the idea here is they are glued. And I don't mean Elmer's glue. I mean like epoxy. I mean you take this part out of its tube and this part out of its tube, mix it together and you bind and that metal and that metal is bound and you're not going to tear it apart. It is epoxied together. That's the idea that God said. God has unique math, guys. God says... One plus one plus one is one. You say, no, Jeff, that's not the text. God says, Father and Son and Spirit. Oh, so there's three gods. No, there is one God. There's only one God. Father, so is the Father a distinct person? Yes, the Father is a distinct person from the Son who is distinct from the Holy Spirit. But there's only one God. God has other unique math. One man, one woman, Take vows and covenant vows before God and mankind and consummate that marriage physically, they are one flesh, not to be torn apart. The number one is not divisible. God says, Two can become one, but one cannot become two again. That's what God teaches on marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Where do we get that idea from? Go to Malachi. Flip over to Malachi. It's the last book in the New Testament, just before Matthew. So we've been in Matthew. Look at Malachi, and I want you maybe you want to put a little mark. We're going to chapter 2. We're going to come back here in a little while, but I just want to use verse 14. So we're going to come back to this exact text in a little bit later, but I just want you to see a quick thought. Malachi chapter 2, the prophet writes the following. Really, the Lord speaking. Talk to the Jews. He's really fussing at the Jews uh, for their idolatry and various things they've been doing. Verse 14. Malachi 2.14, what does the Bible say? We're talking about marriage as a covenant and a picture. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not what? God, you've been rejecting our offerings. He fusses at him earlier on in the book of Malachi. Your offerings are your leftover animals, things you would not give your governor. You're, you're bringing me your mangy, spotted, sick, crippled, blind. And God says, I'm not accepting it. But even then, when we do bring our offering, it's as though you're not receiving it. You're not blessing. We're doing these offerings sometimes correctly, and you're still not blessing. Why? Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Here's the answer. Listen what the Bible says. Because the Lord was witness. You say, yeah, we got before God and these witnesses. God's saying, I was a witness. I was there. I saw your betrothal. I saw your your vows, I saw you consummate the marriage, I saw your marriage, and then I saw what you did at the end of it. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Watch what the verse says. Wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. you want to know why it seems like your offerings are not being received? They're not. You've not been faithful to the wife of your youth, you've been faithless. Though she is. She is your companion, and your wife by covenant she is no 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 i I divorced she is your wife by covenant she's your wife and companion if you're keeping notes write this in your mind and then in your in your handout if you want hear me marriage is a covenant not a contract marriage is a covenant not a contract you say covenant contracts all the same no it isn't what's the difference do you know if I make a contract with you and I buy your car and we make a deal that I'm going to pay you $300 for the next $300 a month for the next two years, $7,200. Maybe you're selling it to me for $6,000, but you're going to get a little bit of interest. You're going to save me go to the bank. I'm going to pay you $300 a month. If I get five months into that and I stop making my payments, then you're going to come get the car back. Why? Because I only paid $1,500 out of the $7,200. I broke the contract, so now you're going to go back on on your part of the agreement because I started it. A covenant is much stronger than that. In the Old Testament, a covenant... You guys studied this before? A covenant was ratified by two people entering the covenant, cutting an animal in two and laying one part of the animal over here and another part of the animal over here. And the two people will walk through the animal... The, the, the cut animal, the sawn asunder animal. And what they're doing is saying, God, would you do this to me if I break this covenant with this person? If two kings, here's a city and they have a king, and here's a city and they have a king, and they make a covenant, we're never going to attack each other. We're making a, a covenant. In fact, if you're ever attacked, me and my people will come help defend you. And if we're ever attacked, you and your people will come defend us. And we go through this. God, may you cut me in two if I break this agreement, this binding agreement. This is so different from a contract in that if this king is attacked and this king does not come and defend them, then when this king is later on attacked, this king is still bound. No, no, no. They didn't do what they promised, and so I'm getting out. No, not in a covenant. That's a contract. A covenant says, hey, you didn't come defend me, but I'm going to keep my end of the covenant because I don't want God to cut me in sunder. Hey, what you, how you broke the covenant, that's between you and God. I'm keeping my end of the deal. You're starting to see how a covenant in marriage is? That's different. It's different than a contract. A covenant, if I do a wedding, I usually say the following. A covenant is a sacred and solemn agreement willingly entered into by two people that strongly binds them together. Again, okay, like a, kind of like a promise. Guys, we've all made promises, and we know that some of those promises we meant more than others. The covenant promise that a couple enters into in the bonds of marriage, listen, it's the absolute strongest and most binding that two human beings can enter into with each other. It outranks the business partner. It outranks the lodge. It even outranks the softball league. What you're going into in the in bonds of marriage, this is a covenant. God, I will do my part. And What they do on their end is between them and God. I will be faithful to what I'm saying before God and these witnesses. God, listen to me. This covenant is so strong and unshakable that when I first start talking to people who are even thinking about taking these vows, I warn them, you're going to think I'm trying to talk you out of being married. I use four words. If you're even thinking about it, hey, young people or older folks, you're thinking, I'm thinking about getting married. You need to do it soberly, advisedly, solemnly, prayerfully. Soberly, if I'm talking to him, I'd be like, no, are you thinking right? Are you in your right thinking? Are you, are you, is there some pressure being put upon you? Do you know what you're getting ready to go into? Oh, yes, I know what I'm going into. You need to do this soberly. It, nobody's tricking you in, you don't feel like you have, no, 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 sober, I, you need to think about it, and I love when we go through some things, and I'll see the light bulb going, and sometimes you'll see folks sitting there, and going, and you can see the wheels turning like, well this is like for like permanent, yeah, that's what we're talking about, permanent, advisedly, I'm not going to say, that if one of the parents, is against it, that it automatically needs to be called off, but if godly parents are against it, You might need to pay attention. If the people that love you the most, your best friends who know you the best, if they're all saying, don't do it, stop, you probably need to strongly consider what is being said. This is an, an agreement, a covenant that needs to be considered. I haven't done it yet. I'm thinking about doing it. You need to consider this solemnly, and the biggest one is prayerfully. God, you know me. You know them. You know 20 years from now. Is this what I'm supposed to do? Please break it up if you don't want it to happen. Lord, I mean it. I'm surrendered to your will. You better go into it prayerfully. A marriage covenant, this is key, implies that two people purposely and joyously are choosing to bind themselves to each other at the exclusion of all other people for the rest of their life. Joyously choosing. This is a person who says, you know what? I can stay single, and I can be good friends, and I can date. And again, if I want to, I don't ever have to make any promises of of exclusivity with anyone. I can go have fun on a date with that person, and another person, and that one, and that one. And I could just spend the rest of my life doing that. And there would be no sin in it if you're, no sex and no lust being drawn into that. You could do that just fine. But this person is saying, I'm ready to give all of that up. I don't have to. I am choosing. I want to be bound for the rest of my life. To this person. And they want to be bound to me. Ephesians chapter 5. Would you flip over there. Ephesians 5. Another important passage. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is writing about marriage. I'm going to jump to the end. Because we've got to make a quick point here. I'm not camping here. A quick point. Ephesians 5 verse 31. We read it a while ago in Genesis. Paul reiterates. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast. Be epoxied to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. One. They're one. Used to be two. Now they're one in God's eyes. Paul then says, he writes to the Ephesians, this mystery is profound. It's profound. You may not even get all that's going on here. Nor will I. But Paul says it's a mystery. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it... It is the one fleshness of husband and wife in marriage. The man leaves and cle- leaves father and mother, cleaves to the wife, they become one flesh. Paul says it's a mystery, it is profound. And I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Marriage is a covenant, marriage is a picture. Paul is saying this is a mystery. Paul uniquely seemed to have revealed to him mysteries. He talks about, in his writings, the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? That the Messiah is going to be God himself. Wait a minute. I thought the Messiah is like a king, a great man. Oh, he is. No, no, no. You just said Messiah is going to be God himself. It is. Okay, well, which is it? God or man? Yes. And this blew their minds. It was there all along, but they didn't really put it together. God reveals it to Paul. He writes it out very clearly. Paul talks about a mystery of something we call the rapture. You won't find the word in the Bible. You say, well, not all Christians die. There will be a group of Christians at the end before the tri- tri- tribulation. And they'll be raptured up. It's a mystery. Has it, it's been there all along, but they didn't really know it in the Old Testament. God reveals it to Paul. Paul says, here's another mystery. Jews and Gentile one.'" Not Jews over Gentile one in the church. Both Jews and Gentiles in the church? Absolutely. It's a mystery. It's been revealed now. And here's what Paul says: Marriage. Listen. Marriage is for fulfillment. Pleasure. Support. Two are better than one. to support. Marriage is for propagation. Godly children populate the world. But what Paul is saying is, here's a mystery. It's been there all along. It's been made clear in the latter times, 2,000 years ago to him. Hear it. Marriage all along, the primary purpose of marriage is that it is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. It's a picture of God's relationship with his people. Go if you would. Isaiah. Well, it'll be on the screen. I don't know if you have time to get there. I'm going to fly right into it. Look at Isaiah chapter 54, verse number 5. Look what the Bible says. You say, Jeff, this relationship of God with his people... Isaiah 5, 54, verse 5. Watch this. God's talking to Israel. Very important. For your maker is your husband. Your maker, your creator, is your husband. The Lord of hosts. He's saying, don't be downtrodden. Things may look bad. You look small. But man, Israel, you're going to be great. You need to like let out. You need to have like bigger tents. Get ready for what's coming. The land is going to be, needs to be expanded for what's coming. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah chapter 3. It will also be on the screen. So God, literally God, marries Israel. God enters a covenant with Israel. Don't hold me to this little tidbit of theology. I'm going to throw it out. I'm not, I've not studied this. But it's almost as though God is betrothed to Israel in Genesis 12, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, moving forward. But they're married at Sinai in the book of Exodus. They're, when they receive the law, God, you'll be our God, and we're going to do these things, and God makes these promises to the nation of Israel, and now they're married. So much so that in Jeremiah chapter 3, unfortunately, things got really bad in this marriage, and God accuses Israel of the father. He's, uh, of, of the following. He says, Surely, as a treacherous wife, you ever seen this? As a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. We're married and you went off and you cheated on me with Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch and Chemosh. You're cheating on me with the false gods of this world. We're married and off you go over there. And here stands God still firm. What's the point? Marriage is a, our marriages are a picture of this binding covenant between God and his people, between Christ and the church. Christ takes Christians. He makes these wild promises. If you'll put your faith and trust in me, I will give you eternal life. Guys, I did that in 1979. Do you know that my eternal life is not riding on how good I am and do I keep all of God's laws and commandments? It is not riding on that. It was settled In 1979, God made a promise. Around here, we believe in something called eternal security. You can't lose salvation once it's been obtained. We believe in that. You know what God's saying here in Ephesians 5? Our marriages are supposed to give that picture in human form of God's faithful, unbreakable relationship with His people. Well, what about if we get astray? I know. There are times that my fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ may grow weary and strained and not be fervent sometimes i'm like lord where are you and it's like yeah i know i've gone away but my relationship notice i use the word fellowship but my relationship has never changed since that time and i put my faith in. he gave me eternal life john piper writes the following this is important watch talking about this permanence of the relationship and how our marriages are supposed to be a picture. In other words, you can count on it. We can count on what God says in salvation. The husband and the wife can count on that and we're supposed to be a picture to the world in human form of that union. Piper writes the following about the idea of the permanence of that relationship in our marriages. He writes the following. Listen carefully. He says, this is one of the main reasons that divorce and remarriage are so serious. Why is it so serious? They tell a lie about God's relationship to his people. Our earthly marriages, when we divorce and get remarried, what's supposed to be a picture of God's relationship and our relationship that is permanent, all of a sudden is very distorted and it's giving a, a wrong view. It is lying about this Paul says it's a mystery, the whole thing all along. Yes, it's for these other reasons, but the big thing is it's a picture of God's relationship, and now we're making it look like a lie by getting out of our marriages through divorce and remarriage. So again, he says they tell a lie. Divorce and remarriage tell a lie about God's relationship. I have more to this quote that I want to unpack just for a moment. He writes the following, God never divorced his wife and married another. If someone was a really good Bible scholar, they may be thinking, now hold on, Jeff, I know in Jeremiah chapter 3, where you read a while ago, God actually gives Israel a writing of divorcement. But notice, he never divorces them. It never is followed through. It's threatened to them, but ultimately, Piper's correct in writing the following. Hear this is important, because I'm going to draw some conclusions from this that affect our relationships. Piper writes, there were separations. There were separations and much pain, but he always took her back. Talking about Israel. The prophet Hosea is a testimony to God's radical love for his wayward spouse. God never abandons his wife. And when he has to put her away for for adulterous idolatry, he goes after her in due time. And that is so true. That's what... So Jeff, do you say there are times in, in marriages that there are times of separation? Sure, God has been separated from Israel before. In fact, they're in a time of separation right now because God sent his son and Israel's rejecting as a whole. Israel re- is rejecting his son. But I also know this. Zachariah says the day will come when the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced and they will believe. And the moment they receive Christ, then God the Father just accepts them right back in. He's that patient and kind and merciful? Absolutely. That's the point of marriage. Yes, there's some times of of separation. In fact, God even lets it get painful for his wife Israel. They get really down in pain, and that's usually what makes them cry out, oh God, please we realize how wrong we were. And I apply that to earthly marriages. You know what, sometimes? Yeah, you don't just let that keep happening and that keep happening, and that keep happening. Maybe there needs to be a time of separation, but we're not talking about divorce. And we're talking about let it get bad. And it might even affect the finances. And this one over here is doing something that keeps ruining all the finance. You may have to, like, take steps for some time and let them get desperate. Don't always soften the landing. God did that with Israel, and they'd come back. Yeah. It's better over here. Hosea. Man, what a picture. God tells Hosea, Hosea, come here. I've got an assignment for you. Okay, Lord, what is it? What do I need to say? Well, it's a little different. I want you to marry this girl named Gomer. Now, I always say that in my counseling time. I always say, well, right there is where God lost me. You asked me to marry someone named Gomer. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry if your grandmother's name is Gomer. I, I, I'm just being serious. But God, I, I can't do that. But Hosea obeyed. But the big thing is God says when you marry her, she's going to play the fool and she's going to become a prostitute and she's going to be unfaithful. Why would God tell a man to marry someone that he knows is going to cheat on him? Because God took a wife knowing that Israel was going to cheat on him. Why would God do that? Because God's love is radical. Piper completes his quote or portion I will use. He says he goes after her in due time. This is what marriage is meant to portray God's invincible and gracious commitment to his covenant people his wife number two so we're talking about Matthew five thirty-one, number two what God said about divorce through Moses what God says about divorce through Moses if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy 24 because this is the actual passage that is loosely being referred to in Matthew 5.31. I'm going to tell you guys, out of all the things that I've looked at this week, this passage was the most enlightening to me. I'd never seen some of the things that I saw this week, and I've probably read it about 15 times, and some things really started to stand out. Just before I read it, John MacArthur helps us here. So I'm going to give you an overview, all right? And by the end of next week, you should know where, at least I am, by the way, I am not guaranteeing that I am right on everything that I'm saying on this, but I'm doing my best. MacArthur gives four basic views of divorce and remarriage, and people that study this and teach on it are going to fall into one of the following four categories. Here they are. Overview. Group number one have this thought. Divorce is not permissible under any circumstances. It's always wrong. Okay, there's view one. Number two divorce and remarriage divorce and remarriage are permissible for any reason or we could say for many reasons there's a lot of people that that's them irreconcilable differences we're just not getting along it isn't working out oh well just get divorced do your paperwork though release them that's a lot of people group number three a lot of good people are in group number three Divorce is permitted under certain, certain circumstances, but remarriage is never permitted. A lot of good people believe that. Divorce in certain circumstances, but not remarriage. And then the fourth, a lot of people are in this category. Divorce and remarriage are permitted in certain circumstances. So again, divorces. Group one, divorces never allowed. Group two, divorce and remarriage is allowed pretty much any old time. Group three, divorce is permitted but not remarriage. Group four, divorce and remarriage. But boy, it's not very often. It's very limited. You've got to see what the Bible says. And so Jesus comes along and says, You've been hearing that you give a woman a, a writing of divorce, and it's fine. I'm going to propose to you that that is not a quote from the Old Testament. The Jewish people have gotten to such a point that their men were treating their women like a piece of property. And what they did with a piece of property is a little above a piece of property, they're ready to get rid of them. And so the thought went something like this, I'm ready to get rid of her, but since we're talking about a person, I probably need to release her by giving her an official certificate of release so she can get remarried. And you probably need to do the right thing and return the dowry that her mom and dad gave because that just wouldn't be right because they gave her to me like I was going to have her forever. So I need to return that and give her a writing of divorcement. Hey, man, is that your wife still? No, I really... Did you give her the paperwork? No, not really. Okay, well, you need to do that so she can move on. That's the mindset that they have, and that's all messed up thinking. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Here's the text, guys. This is the one that people are drawing from, and I want you to read it with me. This shocked me. Verses 1 through, the first part of verse 4 is one long sentence. Please don't get caught up in counting these. I think I counted 11 times the word and. I shouldn't have said it, because now you're going to go, one, two, three, four. Watch this as we're going through it. It's telling a story. This and this and that and that and that and that and that. This is one long sentence. It's it's like strange. And as I read this, I was like, this is not at all what everybody thinks it's doing. Let's read it. Here we go. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, And puts it in her hand. And sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her. And writes her a certificate of divorce. And puts it in her hand. And sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies. Who took her to be his wife. Then her former husband. Who sent her away. The first one may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And in the little second sentence, we're not going to look at it much. But And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Look at it again one more time, and I'm going to make a few points from this text. I want to challenge you. Go home and test what I'm saying here this morning. I want to read it again so you get the feel. her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that's an abomination before the Lord. Man, that's a long sentence. I'm going to make a proposal to you. That long sentence, nowhere in it does it condone divorce. It's just God describing divorces. You're going to have to follow me right here. We're going to get technical for a second. got to think. Nowhere in this text is God condoning divorces. He's just describing scenes of divorces. Nowhere is He condoning it. But what the Jews had heard in their mind as God's describing scenarios where people get divorced, what they heard in their head is God's okay with divorce. It's not in the text. Verse 1 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. What is that indecency? You say, Jeff, it's not in the text. So you know what good Bible scholars do when it's not in the text? We invent things and put them in the text. That's what the Jewish teachers did. So you had two main schools. Follow me. School number one, boy, they were the strict ones. It doesn't say what the indecency is so it's adultery. But wouldn't it if... It it doesn't say it but we're going to say if a man, if she commits adultery then you're allowed to divorce her. Now this other school, by the way, everybody likes the second school better. This is the American modern school of of rabbinical teaching. It goes something like this. Well, it doesn't say what the indecency is so we're going to offer several situations. If a woman humiliates her husband in public, divorce her. If a woman disappoints you in private, you can divorce her. If a woman rejects and doesn't accept your leadership as the head of the home, you can divorce her. And then the one that everybody really loves, if you have found someone that you like better, then you can divorce her. Hey, guess what? Go figure. I found somebody that likes me, and they're actually an upgrade, so I'm going to get rid of you, but I'm going to give you paperwork so you can get remarried. Like, what? Not in the text. Nowhere is God condoning. I don't know if anybody's going to get what I'm saying here today. I want to encourage you, if you don't, go back and watch this a little bit later in the week or later down the road. I want to throw this out. I hand-wrote this later after i typed. The text does not say the following. If a man discovers some indecency in his wife, such as A, B, C, D, then he should divorce. It does not say that. And it doesn't say, if a man finds indecency like A, B, C, D, he should divorce. But, by the way, you need to give her a writ of divorcement and release her to remarry. It doesn't say that. Jeff, what's the point? Watch. These four verses are less prescription and much more description. It's less prescription, it's more description. As I read these, I'll challenge you to do the same. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm just simple. I don't know all the background languages of the Hebrew, but I read it in English multiple times. It is not It's not prescriptive, it is descriptive. The only real prescription is that the wife should not be remarried to the first husband if there's a second marriage between the two. That's what the prescription is. My Bible here has these headings, right? Heading over here, chapter 23, those excluded from the assembly. Later on, uncleanness in the camp. Later on in chapter 23, miscellaneous laws. The heading of chapter 24, laws concerning divorce. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not accurate. Because I'm reading this going, where are the laws concerning divorce? They're not in the text. Jeff, what do you mean? Watch. The specific law is about the abominable remarriage to the first husband after the second marriage. This is not even a law about divorce. The whole tone of the text is the conclusion of verse 4. Everything leads down to verse 4. It's not even about the divorce in verse number 1. It's just assuming there's these divorces. By the way, if, you, if that's you, you've been divorced, then get back with your first husband. But if you've been married to someone else, then even if the second husband dies, don't get back with the first husband. Now, I'm, I do this every now and then, right? There are some times when I read the Bible and it just doesn't make sense to me and I sometimes share that with you guys. This is one of those times. I read this and I'm like, God, I don't get it. This seems like a great opportunity. If you were against the first divorce, obviously you were because the woman is defiled by going out and getting remarried. That's a hint to us that the first divorce was not even right So if the husband dies or lets her go, isn't this a great opportunity to get back with the first? I don't know why. God says, nope, that makes me sick. Don't do that. One more quote from Piper this morning. This may be instructive for many of us. Watch this. This is important. You with me? The key to the text is verse 4. Don't go back and remarry the first husband. Piper says, quote, Moses' prohibition." You know what that means? Don't do this. Moses' prohibition of a wife returning to her first husband, even after the second husband dies, suggests that today no second marriage should be broken in order to restore a first one. I think that's good theology. We can learn something out of this text. It's really not laws about what are the grounds for divorce, but we can learn this. If someone's in a second marriage after a divorce, then don't break the second one to go back and try to mend things. Hey, I've been down there. Jeff's been preaching on divorce and remarriage, and so I contacted my ex, and uh, I'm sorry, but I need to divorce. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Say, why? And maybe you're thinking, but Jeff, what if the original divorce and the remarriage was sinful? Here comes the emotion. But Piper tries to help us here. He writes the following. Even a disobedient second or third marriage should not be broken but confessed. Do y'all know what happens when we confess? It's amazing. Don't break the second or third but confess it as less than ideal and yet sanctified By God's mercy, he says it is better in God's eyes than more broken covenants. Don't break another covenant to try to clean the mess from breaking the first covenant. Don't do that. I thought that was very insightful. I told you we'd go back to Malachi. Would you turn there very quickly just before we go into the third and final point this morning. Malachi chapter 2 again. We'll zip through this. I want to read the context around it this time to make a point out of verse 16. Malachi chapter 2. I told you earlier they're really puzzled why the Lord's not receiving their offerings. Well, their priests have been misteaching them. They've been giving God their leftovers if they give God any sacrifices. But even then, God's not showering the land with blessing. Verse 13. God's complaining against Israel and says, verse 13, and this second thing you do, second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it, with your, accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I've been watching that. That's why I'm not receiving your offerings. You've never gotten that right. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What's God after in these unions? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Hey, everybody that's married, listen to verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The ESV writes the following. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, and by the way, you see that does not love, that's strong, that's not lightweight, that means does not love so much that he hates his wife and divorces. Watch what the Bible says. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. See what God says? When you do that, It's like you've killed someone and the evidence of the blood is splattered all over you. You've covered your garment with violence. Do you see how God is frowning upon it? Now, I need to do one more thing before we look at third point. Some of you are like me. You grew up with King James. And you've looked at that text and said, I could have swore there was somewhere there's a phrase that that I I know the Bible says. Could we have the King James Version of verse 16? Look at this. Do you see this? Earlier in the phrase where it says... Let me find it. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces. You see that phrase, does not love? Hey, I'm confessing I am not an Hebrew expert. I am not a linguistic expert by any means. But the experts say this verse is extremely hard to translate. They know that this one word, apparently this one phrase, is the idea of hates. So much so, does not love is hates. The ESV, which I feel very comfortable about preaching from week to week, takes that word and lets it modify the man. This man hates, doesn't love his wife, and it caused him to divorce. But most translations say that word is not describing the man. It's describing God. What does God hate? What does God not love so much that he hates it? Divorce. For the Lord, watch this, the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth God putting away. The putting away is divorce. God says, I hate divorce. What does the Bible say about divorce through Moses? It never endorses it. It just describes it and says, hey, don't go back and remarry the first husband after a second marriage. Ultimately, you want to know what God says about divorce? God hates it. Third point today. So marriage is a covenant and a picture. We saw what God says through Moses. Number three, what does God say about divorce through Paul? And then one last text I want us to go to, and that's 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. What does God say about divorce through Paul? And then in two weeks, we'll see what God says about divorce through Jesus. Actually, what Jesus? We don't have to word it that way. Jesus is God. So what does Jesus say? We're going to see that in two weeks. This morning, one more time. What does God say about divorce through Paul? I want to begin at the end of chapter 7, and then we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 7. Look at the end of chapter 7. Verse 39. You there? Let's look at the end first. Verse 39. Here's God's word. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married To whom she will. Only in the Lord. Corinthians is written to Christians. So Paul's saying, hey, hey, hey. Spouse died, you can get remarried. Now, now, it needs to be a Christian. But verse 40, Paul says, yet in my judgment, my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, a widower. It's an important last sentence. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Two quick points. First point is this. What Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the inspired word of God. That's what he's saying at the end. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. God is leading me to write these things. This is not just Paul's opinion. Even though he's saying some things that may sound like opinion, it is strong. They are not binding a couple of parts, but other parts are binding. This is authoritative word of God. I think that I too have the spirit. Second thing that is so clear from this text is the following death breaks the marriage bond now you would think I wouldn't need to emphasize that but I'm gonna emphasize it just for a moment I hope no one ever thinks spouse dies it just be wrong I'll be cheating on John or Jane if I get remarried Do you know how many people feel that and that's where I want to say do you hear what God says do you remember what your vow was here was your vow Till death do us part. Death has parted you. You can get remarried. But I I just feel like... No. You can get remarried to a Christian. The Bible is clear. Let me give you quick evidence. Do you guys remember in Matthew 22, the Sadducees who who do not believe in the resurrection came and challenged Jesus? And they made this scenario. And there's this woman who marries this husband, oldest son, oldest brother, she marries him, but he dies. And so, part of the Levitical law, she then marries the next oldest brother because the first uh, brother did not have any children through the marriage. He died. So the second one, the next oldest, she's to marry him and raise up children to the first husband, but he died. And then the third husband, she marries him, and he dies. And the fourth, the fifth, sixth, seventh. I'm saying all of that for this purpose. I'm not going to get into resurrection and how Jesus taught how wrong they were about the resurrection. Here's the point. Nowhere does Jesus say those weren't real marriages. Nor does he say, I've got a problem with her getting remarried. No. Seven times married, that's fine. They died seven times. She could get married an eighth time. Jesus has no problem with the remarriage. Now if he would. So two points. What Paul's writing is authoritative. Death breaks the marriage bond. Back to verse 6. This is where we come down the home stretch. Here we go. Verse 6. I'm going to read to verse 16. Here we go. Now as a concession, not a command. And as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. What, Paul? I wish everybody was like me. What do you mean? But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Everybody can't be like me, but if they could, I wish everybody was like me. What do you mean? Verse 8. To the unmarried. That's some folks here this morning. To the unmarried and the widows. That's some folks here this morning. Widows, widowers. I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control. He's talking about sexually. uh, If I try to stay single, I'm going to end up committing sin at least in my heart. Okay, well then get married. Or I just have have a, a need for companionship. I'm just going to, okay. Then get married. But notice what he writes. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. They are saying, I'm suggesting, if you can, stay single. But if not, get married. Not everybody can be single and pure. To the married, I give this charge. Watch this little phrase. Not I, but the Lord. What Paul is saying here is all I'm doing now is I'm repeating what Jesus has already said. This isn't new material. Watch verse 10. To the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband. And then there's this parenthetical, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. That's the choices. But the real gist of verse 10, to the married I give this charge. Jesus already talked about it. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then after the little parenthetical statement, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Very, very clear. So, hey, if you can stay single, great. If not, then get married. Better to marry than to burn with passion. Stay in your marriages. Now here comes the new part. Verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. This is not Paul competing with Jesus This is just Paul saying this has not been covered by the Lord. This is new revelation. And verse 40 says, oh, by the way, I have the Spirit. This is authoritative. Here comes new information. And this is where I'm going to close out today this thought. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Again, Jesus hasn't covered this yet. But the Spirit of Jesus led me to write this. That if any brother, he's talking about a brother in Christ, has a wife who is an unbeliever, saved man married to an unsaved woman, if she... Consents to live with him He should not divorce her If any woman Saved woman Has a husband who is an unbeliever Saved woman married to an unsaved man And he consents to live with her She should not divorce him I don't want to be married to an unsaved Stay in that marriage Verse 14 For the unbelieving husband Is made holy because of his wife And the unbelieving wife Is made holy because of her husband Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Well, that's confusing. But, if the, here's the, here's the new revelation. If the unbelief, don't you separate, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For How do you know, wife? Whether you will save your husband. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Write this down very quickly. The Bible elevates marriage and singleness. You say, come on, it can't elevate both. The Bible elevates marriage and the Bible elevates singleness. How? Do you know that what the Bible teaches is that married people support each other? Married people can have an element of pleasure that a single person is not able to have. Married people can raise up godly offspring and affect the world. Married people can probably reach other married people in a way that singles cannot. So there's an advantage to marriage. But the Bible also says there's a tremendous advantage to being single. What's it? Single people can give even more focus to serving God without having to worry about a spouse. Sorry, I'm married. My wife's been serving people, serving the Lord by serving people all week this week. This morning she taught a Sunday school. She's right now down there with the toddlers. She does a lot. Could you imagine how much more she could do if she didn't have to worry about a bum like me? Got to get him some food and got to do that and do his laundry. and like She could do even more. So, Jeff, what you're saying is, Paul is commanding all of us we need to be single. No, not everybody can be single. If you can be single and pure and not lustful or sleeping around, then, hey, great. Don't go through life single people like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not married? Nothing's wrong with you. Serve God with your life. But if you're called to marriage, that's a great calling as well. And so, Paul in verses 10 and 11, married people, stay married to each other, Christians. And then he gets to this section: What if I'm married to an unsaved person, like we have represented in the room this morning? Paul tells you, by the way, that happens one of two ways, right? Two unsaved people marry each other, just living life, and then you got saved. And as time goes by, they're irritated and disappointed. And they're like, "Yeah, well, when we first got married," We used to do that and that and that and have a good one. Now you got your nose in that book all the time and you're down there every Sunday morning and you get with those ladies and you get with those guys and I'm just kind of sick of, I feel like you love God more than me. Um, yeah, I love you. But I do love God. See, and I'm tired of it. I want out. I don't want out. I want out. You know what Paul says? You let them go. Don't you, Christian, initiate you're being called to stay married to the unsafe person. But Jeff, at the end of chapter number six, it's talking about this, this just immorality and how sexual sins affect us and are not being contaminated by having sex with an unsafe person. No, that's your spouse. Stay in that relationship. But if they insist on leaving, then you let them go. Why? I'm almost done. Number one. Because your marriage is a picture of God's relationship with Christ. You're going to keep your word. God keeps his covenants. You keep yours. Secondarily to that, Paul offers the following. You might win them to Christ. You might actually win them to Christ. So stay in it. If, it's a, if they're willing to stay and don't want to leave, then you surely don't drive the, the divorce. But I want to be married to a, a Christian. There's this guy down at the church, and I really like him. Stop it. You need to cut that off in your brain right now. Stop. Don't even go down that way. You might win your unsaved husband or wife to Christ. One more time through verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is they are holy. Can I promise you guys I'll promise you. Let me tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that an unsaved person who marries a saved person. By marrying them escapes hell and escapes the penalty of sin. It does not mean that. If that's what it means, then we need to employ that strategy. Our high school and college ministry needs to be raising up strong Christians. All right, and now what? You ready? Go find an unsafe person and marry them because as soon as you marry them, they're on their way to heaven, and all the kids you have automatically go to heaven. You say, Jeff, if that's not what it means, then what does it mean? What it means is, holy means set apart for blessing. By having one Christian in the marriage, the other person, whether they know it or not, are actually in a position to receive blessings because of the blessings on the other person. The influence of the Christian in the relationship is such that the other person stands to be more and great more greatly blessed because they're married to the same person. So don't rob them of that by getting divorced. Don't rob your children. They may win custody and all of a sudden you're wondering why I lost my kids. Yes, you lost your kids because you lost your influence. Paul is making an assumption here that the believer's salt and light is even more powerful than the unbeliever's darkness. But more than that, my husband, he's a bad influence. Then you be a stronger Christian than he is a bad influence. You be a stronger Christian. Paul makes that assumption. Then the last thought, because you may just win him to the Lord. And I'm gonna make some of you angry because I'm not gonna be dogmatic on verse 15. I can't. I'll give you my opinion but if the unbelieving partner separates they insist then let it be in such cases the brother or sisters not enslaved God's called you to peace so here's what we know abandonment by an unsaved partner frees a believer from marriage abandonment by the unsaved partner frees the believer from marriage here's the debate And there's disagreement on the debate. There are good theologians who read that phrase. I mean, a lot smarter people than me. Who read that phrase. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You know how they read that? They're not enslaved to that marriage and they can get out. They've been divorced. They left. Okay, then stay. Don't feel bad. You're you're free from the marriage. But stay unmarried. Others, and I'm going to tell myself, I believe this means that the Christian who's been abandoned by an unbeliever, I believe they are free to get remarried. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. Good people disagree with that. So my conclusion this morning, and we'll just pray. Death breaks the marriage bond. Abandonment by an unbeliever breaks the marriage bond. In two weeks, we're going to see what Jesus says about divorce. A lot of people read what Jesus says, and here's what they think. There's this huge back door to marriage off of what Jesus says. I want to challenge you. Is there really this great, large back door? Is there really? I invite you to come in two weeks. Here's what I know. Marriage is a gift from God. But if you're thinking about doing it, you need to know something. You are a very broken person getting ready to enter a lifelong covenant relationship with another very broken person. You say, Well, I'm gonna stay single. Well, here's what you need to know: it is hard to stay single in the United States in our culture in 2019 and be pure in your heart. If you can do it, praise the Lord, more power to you. You say, Jeff, hold on, no, what those are the two options: single or married. You just got kind of say they're both hard. Right. If you're going to get married, then no, you're getting into a relationship. You're getting into a yoke with another broke person, and you're bringing a lot of brokenness. It's going to take a lot of grace of God. If you're single, okay, it's going to take a lot of grace of God to keep you pure. But God gives a lot of grace. God gives a lot of grace. Father, thank you for these folks this morning. Lord, as we just contemplate how you said that our marriages are supposed to reflect... And picture your relationship with us. Lord, you used this idea of a covenant. Those of us who are in marriages, I pray that we would really feel the weight of that, the opportunity. I pray that we would joyfully be thankful that we get to be bound to one person for the rest of our life. May we be faithful, no matter what they do. No matter what they do, Lord, may we be found faithful on our end of the covenant. Father, may we not twist a passage in Deuteronomy to condone wrong ideas of acceptable reasons for marriage lord i pray that we would really seek your face and take into account what paul said and what jesus says and lord i pray for those that are here that are married to an unsaved partner or that you would give them grace and let them live for you in such a way god would you let them lead their spouse to christ because they have so much faith it's undeniable it makes them thirsty and their words Give light, and Lord, let them have wisdom on when to be quiet and when to say something tactfully and timely and just be faithful, consistent. So, Lord, I commit them. Lord, I pray for our singles. Lord, it is tough. You know this. Maybe as tough as any time in the world to be pure, and I, I commit them to your care. Would you give them wisdom? And, Lord, if they stay single, let them use that opportunity as a great platform to serve you in even greater ways than married people can. Lord, I commit this congregation to you. Lord, if anything I've said is amiss, I pray that you would let it fall on deaf ears. And that which is true, may we change our lives and not try to alter your word. Lord, would you go with us? Let us be light and salt in this world. We pray in Christ's name.